we're going to be in this book for 17 Sundays. And this is how the book is going to be broken down. I want to give you the 10,000 foot view. I go faster through Old Testament books than New Testament books. I take bigger chunks in the Old Testament than I do in the New Testament. And you ask, Kyle, why is that? Because much of the Old Testament is narrative. Uh, you don't break up a narrative. You do not interrupt the story. The only New Testament book that is extremely narrative-driven is Acts. And I did take bigger chunks when I walked through the book of Acts. Uh, today, I'd like to anticipate three questions and then answer those questions. That's how I'm breaking down this study. Here are the three questions. One, why should I study 1 Samuel? Two, what do I need to know before studying 1 Samuel? Three, can we finally begin studying the first sermon of 1 Samuel? Now, question number one, why should I study 1 Samuel? You ask, Kyle, why preach an Old Testament book? Most preachers hardly do. Many churches go year after year without ever touching the Old Testament. Well, I know we hammer Andy Stanley and rightly so, for talking about how churches need to unhitch from the Old Testament. But let's not be so ignorant that we ignore many churches in our own ranks don't preach through Old Testament books. They have not theologically, but have practically unhitched from the Old Testament. Only preaching the New Testament is like living in a two-story house, but always staying on the second floor. When you preach the Old Testament, you go to the first floor. The foundation floor. The Old Testament lays the foundation for the New Testament. Everything you find in the New Testament isn't built on air. It's built on a foundation. It's built on the Old Testament. You find here the foundational truths that God spent 2,000 years teaching his people. Skipping the Old Testament is like arriving late to the party. The Bible you hold in your hand is the lips of God. The Bible has two lips, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Don't neglect the bottom lip. Don't forget everyone in the New Testament developed their view of God from the Old Testament. We want to know God better. That's why we study 1 Samuel. The inspiration of Scripture didn't start with Matthew. You can trace it all the way back to the Old Testament. We don't neglect 1 Samuel because it dropped from the lips of God. 1 Samuel is not a dead book. It's a living book. 1 Samuel breathes. 1 Samuel has blood pumping through its veins. Why should I study 1 Samuel? Number one, because it dropped from the lips of God. Number two, because Jesus preached from it. I simply want to point out that Jesus in Luke 24, 27 preached, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's a summary of the Old Testament, and he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That means, one, Jesus preached through 1 Samuel. Two, Jesus preached himself from 1 Samuel. You do know that Jesus never read the New Testament, right? He lived the New Testament, but read the Old Testament. We need to preach the Bible that Jesus preached. We need to read the Bible that Jesus read. For 33 years, Jesus was engulfed in the Old Testament. And it began at his birth. 
when the Old Testament was quoted. It, it continued in his childhood. The Old Testament were the stories Jesus heard, the songs Jesus sang, the scrolls he heard read every week in the synagogue. When Jesus was tempted, he went to the Old Testament. When Jesus preached to his hometown, he went to the Old Testament. When Jesus was crucified, he went to the Old Testament. And Jesus wasn't the only one to preach from 1 Samuel. Peter, Paul, and Timothy all preached from 1 Samuel. Why should I study 1 Samuel? Number one, because it dropped from the lips of God. Number two, because Jesus preached from it. Number three, because it shows how God unfolds his story of redemption. 1 Samuel is a book of history. But it's not just meant to relay Israel's history to you. This history has meaning. This history has purpose. This history has a direction. Don't view 1 Samuel as the British historian Edward Gibbon does. Gibbon loves history, but I think misunderstands it, undervalues it. He called history little more than a register of crimes, follies, and misfortunes of mankind. Lord Chesterton, his contemporary, called history a confused heap of facts. Those of you that are non-Christians, you may look at 1 Samuel that way. But 1 Samuel history is not that. It's not a dust heap. It invites you to follow the historical acts of God. It's, recording, it's a recording of God's unfolding drama of redemption. It's the story of how he's bringing salvation into the world. In 1 Samuel, the Lord will create social and political tragedies in order to accomplish his purpose. God is the great engineer behind all these historical events. 1 Samuel is a collection of hero stories. But don't forget that God is the hero of the whole story. This is history, but this is his story. Why should I study 1 Samuel? Because it dropped from the lips of God. Because Jesus preached from it. Because it shows how God unfolds his story of redemption. Number four, because it will remind you that God can work in the mess. 1 Samuel grants you permission to be honest with your struggle. There's no one in the book with a squeaky clean past or a squeaky clean life. The families that God uses in this book are more dysfunctional than yours. Dysfunctional on the level of the Kardashians. The author does not sugarcoat anything. This is a messy book. At times it seems like God wouldn't be in a hundred miles of any of it. But God works in the mess. Here's just a sampling of what you will find in 1 Samuel. Murder. Suicide by sword. Drunk preachers, a witch bringing up someone from the dead, wives captured for a ransom, gouging out eyes, hacking a human being in pieces, collect, this one just hurts me to even say it, collecting 200 foreskins for a bridal price, killing entire villages, soldiers running away from battle on war camels, burning bodies, a sex scandal at the tabernacle, power struggles, the horrors of war, corrupt national leaders, 
When you walk through this book, it will remind you that God works in the mess. The sticky, stinky, appalling, bloody mess. I will not downplay, skip over, or apologize for what we find in this book. We find real life. The realities of 1 Samuel remind us of the modern world because we see them over and over again in our neighborhoods and in our country. This book is rich in universal, recognizable human experiences. Why should I study 1 Samuel? That's question number one. Question number two, what do we need to know before studying 1 Samuel? Well, you need to know that you're starting in the middle of a story that's already in progress. You need to know something about the book, and then you need to know something about the times. First, the book. Josh Redberg, a pastor who has preached here in the old building, pointed out that if you are unfamiliar with 1 Samuel, you may be surprised by the content. The previous three books of the Bible are Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. The main character in the book of Joshua is Joshua. The main characters in the book of Judges are the Judges. The main character in the book of Ruth is Ruth. And when you finish Ruth and turn to 1 Samuel, you are prepared for a book primarily about Samuel. And when the book begins, Samuel is the main character. But after the first quarter of the book, the focus changes. And we are introduced to Saul and David. And they will dominate the narrative. First, the book. Now, the times. 1 Samuel is chronologically taking place during the last chapters of Judges, which is probably the mid to 11th century BC. The beginning of 1 Samuel is set against the background of the grand finale in the book of Judges, chapters 17 through 21. Don't get confused by 1 Samuel coming after Judges in your Bible. 1 Samuel actually reverses back into Judges. It doesn't merely pick up where Judges left off. Everything going on at the end of Judges is the context for this book. The times of the Judges was a 400-year period after Israel entered the Promised Land under Joshua and before there were any kings in Israel, before Saul, David, or Solomon. And this was total pandemonium. Here's the breakdown. Israel lay in a sin cycle. Their walk with God would be going really well. Then suddenly they would defect. They would enter into idolatry and horrible sin. And God would, would judge them by letting a foreign power come into their land and enslave them. They would grieve and repent under the enslavement and call out to God for rescue. And then God would raise up a judge among his people to deliver them and save them from the hand of their raiders. He'd raise up a judge. Don't think judge like Judge Judy. These were, these were men and they were beasts. Think Jack Bauer, Nicolas Cage, and Tom Cruise all wrapped into one. They were local military heroes. Judges were not national but local. Not political but military. Othniel was the first. Samson was the last. Six judges in all lead us on an epic adventure against the Canaanites the Midianites, the Termites, the, the Philistines. The historians remind us, and this is important, historians remind us that at this point, no great world power was seeking to dominate the Near East. 
Israel's battles were waged against near neighbors whose territory bordered the land occupied by the 12 tribes. They would come and plunder their crops and take their women and children captive. As the judges unfold, they decrease in character and respectability. They go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. Read Judges in your spare time. Uh, The depravity of man is on full display in horrible ways. These included the lowest points in, in the history of Israel, their darkest days, violent invasions, apostate religion, unchecked lawlessness, brutish civil tribal war, national disgrace. Uh, let's just look at the, the average front page news story when 1 Samuel was written. An unbelievable horror story of a Levite who took a mistress from none other than the town of Bethlehem and he traveled to Ephraim where she was gang raped and killed by Israelites. Every cycle seems to get worse like a downward spiral. However, the repentance part is missing at the end of the book, which means it's missing at the beginning of 1 Samuel. The book ends in total moral chaos with Israel as bad, if not worse, than the Canaanites, which they had driven out. These are days of moral anarchy. They have hit rock bottom morally, politically, and spiritually. They've lost their spiritual compass. There's actually a catchphrase that describes the times. It's found all throughout the book of Judges, and it's this. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. The priesthood and the tabernacle were functioning, but not as they should. It might as well be a dead religion. Ever since Moses and Joshua led the nation of Israel out of Egypt, as recorded in Exodus, Israel had consisted of a loosely organized confederation of tribes governed as a theocracy. God was their king, and he ruled through designated leaders. But the the 12 tribes were independent, joining only temporarily for the purpose of joint military adventures. They had no standing army, just individual tribes. Uh, There was a strong and popular demand for a king because judges were limited by their geographical boundaries and they didn't appoint a successor. They wanted a leader to unite the tribes. 1 Samuel records Israel's transition from tribal confederacy to a nation under a king, from theocracy to monarchy. 1 Samuel records the end of the office of the judges, and the beginning of the office of the king. It introduces to us the last of the judges and the first of the kings. Now, enough of outlines, context, history, and judges. There's a woman weeping in Shiloh, and we need to get there and find out what that's all about. Why should I study 1 Samuel? What do we need to know before studying 1 Samuel? Can we finally begin studying the first story of 1 Samuel? I always disliked when a pastor gave an entire sermon to introduce a book, but he never actually got into the book. You can can spend so long setting the table that the people at the table lose their appetite. Kent Shepard, one of our former members who's now in Italy, told me last week that he's listening to a pastor preach through the book of Romans. 
And this pastor had five introductory sermons before he touched chapter one, verse one. I don't want to do that. So let's finally begin studying the first story of 1 Samuel. It was the last straw. True, it happened every year, but the time comes when the spirit snaps. Obviously, Hannah wants to pray, and she will, once the great heaving sobs subside. In one sense, Hannah had almost everything. She had a loving and caring husband, Elkanah, When the Bible introduces him in verse 1, it lists four generations indicating his standing in society. He was a revered man. He was a good man. He was a wealthy man. There are numerous clues throughout the story that reveal he was a man of means. He's successful in his business ventures. It's true he started out ahead with a good genealogy, but he didn't squander it. He did well for himself and his family. How did he make his money? Well, verse 1 says he was the son of Jeroram, who was the son of Elihu, who was the son of Tohu, which may have been the founder of Tofu. Perhaps Elkanah was in the food industry. It doesn't really matter. The only thing that really matters is that Hannah doesn't have a reason to be crying. She never has to fear missing a meal. She never has to fear downsizing into a one-room apartment. She never has to fear going without clothing or house decor or anything material. Her husband is not verbally abusive. In fact, we see him later in the text comforting and complimenting her. He's gentle and loving. They have a good name in the community. She and he are a prominent family in Ephraim. Ephraim, yes, that reminds me. Elkanah was a godly man as well. Remember the front page news for this city and and what it reported? The gang rape by certain Israelites? Elkanah wasn't like the other men in Ephraim. He honored God by honoring his wife. He was part of a remnant in Israel who still read the book of Moses to his kids, who still prayed to God and repented of sins. See, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, but there was one trying to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was determined to live a holy life when others around him were not. He obeyed the law. We know that because once a year he took his family to an annual feast in Shiloh. In a day when religious observance took a nosedive, he doubled down on his commitment to God. See, according to the Torah... Every Israelite family was to journey once a year to Shiloh, the central Yahwistic worship center. And Elkanah, in in verse 3, loads up the family on donkeys and camels, and they make their way out of the hill country. There are no roads cut through the hills, so they're doing some steep climbs and some dangerous descents. It's a 20-mile journey. And with everything in tow, with the sacrifices, the animals, clothing, water, tents, medical supplies, at least eight or nine hours, they finally arrive at Shiloh. They will worship in the morning. They will sacrifice their animals to God as a means of worship when the sun rises. 
Elkanah brings Hannah down off the donkey and he says, I'll set up the tent. You rest. Can I get anything for you? Are you hot? Are you cold? Are you hungry? No, Elkanah, says Hannah. I have everything I need. And she did. In one sense, she had everything. And then in another... She had almost nothing. See, verse 2 reveals some important pieces of information that explain why Hannah could be crying. Verse 2. Elkanah had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. Let's stop here. Hannah was a co-wife. Her husband had two wives, Polygamy is frequently seen in the Old Testament. But just because God describes something does not mean he prescribes it. This was not God's plan for marriage. He set the creation pattern. Adam and Eve. Not Adam and Eve and Eve number two and Eve number three. God never describes polygamy in the Bible in a positive light. It's always a source of conflict and pain. Lamech. The seventh descendant in the line of Cain was the first polygamist in the Bible. If you know his story, you know it only caused pain and heartache. Plus, Jesus clearly stated in Matthew 19 his design for marriage is one man and one woman. In the Old Testament, polygamy was tolerated but never commended. It was a common social custom but not one of God's customs. Now, maybe you're like me and you're still struggling to understand why this good man would take a second wife. Well, the rest of verse 2 will help us. Elkanah had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Elkanah took a second wife because his first wife, Hannah, was barren. She was unable to have children. And this was a big deal in this culture. The husband needed a son to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. In addition, this culture saw children as an essential part of the good life. Having children was necessary for the survival of a nation. You needed babies who turned into boys, who turned into men, in order to build an army. According to the Jewish Talmud, a person without children was considered as good as dead. Barrenness was even a legitimate grounds for divorce. In the Old Testament, a woman's barrenness was not only an emotional and family problem, but it had added meaning. It threatened the fulfillment of God's promise of an abundant seed inheriting the land. You need more? They knew the promised Messiah would come through the seed of the woman. So every Israelite woman who birthed a boy raised the question, is this the one? This entire situation leaks Elkanah with the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who had wives with prolonged childlessness. Hannah now faces the frustration of infertility. But she's not alone. There is in the Bible a fellowship of barrenness. There was Sarah, whose barrenness hung over ten chapters in Genesis like a dark cloud. 
Rebecca was barren for the first 20 years of her marriage. And you've read the soap opera of Rachel's barrenness. The name Peninnah means fruitful. And she was true to her name. Prolific in having children. Hannah's name means favored one. But she was barren, not favored, not true to her name. See, I left out a few important details when I told you about Elkanah and Hannah's trip to Shiloh. They were not alone. The co-wife went on that 20-mile journey with them. She and all her children. The merry chatter of Peninnah's children on the trip further drove a stake into Hannah's heart. The next day, when they all awoke to participate in the worship practice of sacrificing and then having a meal together, something meaningful happened. Verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. Berger points out that meat was actually a rarity in the typical Israelite diet of that day. And, and that the meat was apportioned to each wife in proportion to the number of children she had produced so that she could feed them. When those portions were handed out, Hannah is presented with a visual reminder that she had no kids. At FFC, we do not hand out flowers on Mother's Day. Nothing is wrong with that. We've done it in the past, but we stopped. The church sanctuary is sometimes the most depressing place for those who are barren, though it is the place most needed at that time. Hannah did not say, I'm not going because I'll be presented with a visual reminder that I'm not a mother. No, Hannah was more spiritual than that. What she desperately needed was to worship God. You know what I read from one commentator? That Hannah didn't have to go. The husband for sure had to go on behalf of the family, but she, with no kids, did not have to go. She could have refused to go to worship because of the painful visual reminder of the portions at the table. But she loved God more than children, so she went. She went to the place of worship with a broken heart. Verse 5. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. Elkanah does something tender here. It might not seem like it at first. Here, Hannah, you get two six-ounce filet mignons. He wanted to console her, so he gave her more meat. What a man thing to do. <laughs> it continues, but to Hannah he gave a double portion, breaking the tradition. But he loved her, because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb. The narrator reveals at the end of verse 5 that her barrenness was no accident of nature. The Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had allowed and planned for this disappointment. She could have ran from God. But instead she ran to him. 
to his tabernacle where his presence dwelt. To make matters worse, Hannah and her co-wife didn't get along. They didn't go shopping together. They didn't have inside jokes with one another. They didn't smile at each other. It was extremely toxic. Polygamy. Who could have imagined that turning out to be very toxic? The co-wife mocked Hannah. The narrator details it in verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. <laughs> Peninnah knew her husband loved Hannah more and it enraged her. She would not play second fiddle in the marriage. Hannah's tormentor, her rival, her adversary taunted her cruelly, rubbing it in her face that she didn't have children. It was nothing short of savage mockery. The word irritate here in the Hebrew means to thunder. Uh, Keller says that this is the only place the word is used not to refer to an actual storm. She thundered in Hannah's face, boisterous. She was a mouthy, over-fertile pain in Hannah's neck. While eating the meal, I imagine she said things like, I've got an idea. Why don't we go around the table and share what we're thankful for? I'll go first. I'm thankful I have a red-headed child and a black-headed child and a curly-headed child. I'm so glad little Johnny gets to play Little League in Ephraim. I love watching little Susie play with her dolls and sell her Girl Scout cookies. Your turn now, Hannah. What are you thankful for? How cruel. Uh, oh, Hannah, can you do the dishes tonight? I must get my six children in bed. Peninnah even used the Bible to mock Hannah. The text says she mocked her because the Lord had closed her womb. The Mosaic law listed barrenness as one sign of God's curse. See, barren women were often scorned by other women. There wasn't emotional support there. No emotional support from other women. Infertility was seen as a curse. Can you imagine the conversation around the table? Mom, does God not like Miss Hannah? Is that why he hasn't given her a baby? Well, I don't know, little Susie. What do you think? She must have done something terrible for God to make her barren. Peninnah would say, Hannah, why are you even here? What do you have to worship God for? He closed your womb. Hannah did not carry a child with her to the worship place. But she did carry this stigma with her. Why? Why does Peninnah, a woman of ugly disposition, have children coming out of her ears? And Hannah, a woman of a beautiful soul, have none. Why does she have children and I don't? She must have asked that question a thousand times. Hannah is holy and everything is going wrong. Peninnah is unholy and everything is going right. 
But life goes on. Verse 7. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. The constant baiting, jabbing Hannah, until finally she broke. Right there at the table, in front of other families, in front of the filet mignon, in front of God and everyone, she broke. She was reduced to tears and left her meal uneaten. Barren Hannah is now humiliated Hannah. Verse 8. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Sounds like a great husband so far. It's about to turn, though. He continues, Am I not more to you than ten sons? What a dunce. Somebody reach over and slap Elkanah right in the back of the head. Just because something pops into your mind doesn't mean it has to come out of your mouth. Hannah leaves the table after Romeo says all the right words. What a, what a shocker. By the way, the most well-meaning people may not know what to say. And they may say it imperfectly. Hannah's misery peaked here. She left the table in a hurry and ran to the tabernacle. Short distance to pray. Hear me, church. She did not allow her misery to drive her away from God, but to God. Scholars say that Ashtaroth, Ashtaroth was a Canaanite goddess of fertility. And many Israelite families had an Ashtaroth pole in, on their land or either in their community where they would go and offer sacrifices to this pagan goddess hoping for a child. There's even been excavated uh, little figurines in their homes. Hannah, in her desperation, did not turn to an idol. Instead, she cried out to God. Verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Would you mark those last two words? Wept bitterly. Meaning she's crying out loud, mourning out loud, tears in the tabernacle. She's weeping. She can't articulate words. She's so distraught. What is she weeping about? Her dead womb. You weep at a funeral, and this is a funeral for her dead womb. Have you learned to lament? The Psalms often teach us this. There's a whole book of the Bible, Lamentations, and it's just one big old ugly cry. There are laments in the Christian life. Apparently, tears themselves constitute prayer. Psalm 6, 8 says, God hears the tears. She is crushed in soul and tears are a language that God speaks. John Bunyan said, in prayer, it's better to have a heart. It's better to have a heart without words than words without heart. 
Hannah laid it all out. She laid her heart bare. She hid nothing before her God because nothing can be hid from him. She did not sanitize her feelings but brought her raw pain. Effective prayer is honest prayer. She pours out her anguish. Yahweh is a God who allows her to do that. Verse 11, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts. Now let's, let's stop here. Lord of hosts. This is the first mention here, but it's used four other times in 1 Samuel. It's used 230 times in the Old Testament. It speaks of God commanding a host of stars or a host of angels. Our creator God commands a host composed of angels and stars. He's not a tribal mascot. Oh God of angel armies. If you'll take a good hard look at my pain. If you'll quit neglecting me and go into action for me by giving me a son. Notice what she says in verse 11. Oh Lord of hosts. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. Now, whether Hannah had access to the writings of Moses or not, we do not know, but she certainly knew Exodus 3 and 4 well. God says, I have seen the affliction of my people and I will remember them and not forget them. And God did that and he sent an exodus. Now Hannah prays scripture back to God. See my affliction and remember me. Hannah is calling for a whole new rescue, a new exodus. Now, church, I, I needed to walk through all of that to get you here. In her brokenness, in her barrenness, in her humiliation, what Hannah needed most was theology. Knowledge of God's character, knowledge of God's ways. Her heart wept, but her mind reflected on the Bible. Hannah knew the scriptures, and it informed her view of God. Her pain made her a theologian. No one before her is recorded using this title for God, Lord of hosts. What a theologian Hannah was. Verse 11, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. We saw her theology, now look at her faith. She was a woman of faith. She knew God could give her a child if he so desired. She recognized God as the great enabler of conception. Now, church, what is she not doing in her prayer? She's not praying against Peninnah. She's not praying that Peninnah will have many miscarriages. She isn't praying that God will strike her down. She isn't praying, God... Help her children to keep her up all night long. God, help that baby boy as she changes his diapers to pee in her face. She refuses to get bitter at Penaniah and she refuses to get bitter at God. 
Hannah makes a vow. Her vow is not bargaining with God. It's not strong-arming God. It's the pagans who approach their gods trying to appease them with offers and bribes. That's not what's taking place here. This is an Old Testament biblical vow that doesn't exist for us today. She's taking a Nazarite vow. It was a vow of separation. It's defined in Numbers chapter 6. For someone taking a Nazarite vow, cutting hair on their head was forbidden. Uh, they could have no contact with a dead animal. They could have no alcohol, not fermented grain, beer, or fermented grapes, wine. She's taking this vow for her son, if God so chooses to give her a son. And then I want to read at some length here, verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. <laughs> Eli, the priest, was sitting in the chair of his authority. This allowed him to be the protector of worship and make sure no one came in and desecrated the tabernacle. But what strikes me here is not even clergy understood Hannah. He mistook her earnestness for drunkenness. I'm imagining Eli saw this behavior often. It, you remember the times. Israel wasn't really walking the sober life. This was not uncommon during religious festivals in Shiloh. He thought Hannah was sauced. Sober up, woman. Hannah tells Eli politely but firmly, I'm not on the grapes. I'm not guzzling, I'm pouring. I'm pouring out my soul to the Lord. I'm not consuming grapes. The Lord is consuming me. When Hannah left the tabernacle, I want you to notice the difference in her. When she went in, she was mourning, crying, downhearted, discouraged, no hope, couldn't eat. But verse 18b, then the woman, that's Hannah, went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. She walked into that place in one condition and walked out of that place in another condition. That's what prayer does. That's what meeting with God does. She went from depths of despair to heights of joy. She doesn't know if God will answer her prayer. But she has prayed. And now she leaves with peace. Though the outward circumstances did not change, her inner self did. She's no longer shattered. Prayer changes us. She found her deepest needs met in God. She will not become a bitter woman. In too many instances, grief sours us. It generates acid in our souls. But not Hannah. Hannah slept well that night because the sovereignty of God is a soft pillow. The next morning comes, rise and shine. They worship at the break of dawn before heading home to Ephraim. Pick it up in verse 19b. And Elkanah knew his wife, knew Hannah his wife. Now this is a common euphemism for sexual intimacy. They made love. 
And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. The Lord remembered Hannah. Not like, oh no, Hannah slipped my mind. But remembered is covenant language. God remembered Noah, covenant language. God remembered Abraham, covenant language. God remembered Isaac and Jacob, covenant language. God remembered Hannah, covenant language. It's not that God was so busy running the universe that he lost track of Hannah. The narrator is speaking of God's faithfulness to his covenant people. His memory, God's memory is consistent with his promise and he will take action. Verse 20, and in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now I would have loved to see Peninnah's face when Hannah's womb started growing. It was not dead. It was producing a life. Nine months passed and Hannah is having contractions. She's doing breathing techniques. <laughs> That's my best attempt. We never went to birthing classes because who needs those? We did. We needed them. The baby comes out of the womb all bloody and crying. Elkanah rejoices before passing out after seeing the blood. Hannah holds the baby in her hands and she calls him Samuel. The name Samuel means God hears. This is actually a word play. See, English has a huge vocabulary. We have a finely grained lexicon, but Hebrew doesn't. So Hebrew writers and speakers relied on punning or similar devices to bring out meaning. And this is a pun. I'll call his name God hears. Because God heard. You hear it? I'll call him Samuel because God Samueled. Now, let's take a step back from the text. What shall we do with this story? How shall we internalize it? And what should we take home from it? I've got two applications. Application number one. For those who think true joy and fulfillment comes only after you receive a baby or a husband, or a white picket fence. Application number one, for those who think true joy and fulfillment comes only after you receive a baby, or a husband, or a white picket fence. I want to speak tenderly to those of you who are facing infertility. When you experience times of barrenness, you can tell yourself, this is God repaying me for something I did. Remember when the disciples saw a blind man and asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither. This was meant for the glory of God. The same with your infertility. It's meant for the glory of God. The Lord doesn't promise that all barren mothers will have children. That's not what the text is saying. There were certainly other faithful barren women in Israel who never had a Samuel. This is not an ironclad promise. But you must come to terms with this. Barrenness does not mean God-forsakenness. Dear lady, you are not forsaken by God. Now on the cross, God was forsaken for you. Hannah became a woman of faith in spite of and perhaps because of 
her infertility. Now, let me pull in everyone, not just those struggling with infertility, but those struggling with joy. One of my Old Testament profs in my doctoral program, Heath Thomas, pointed this out. He said, you might expect this order. Hannah prays, Hannah gets pregnant, Hannah is joyful. That's not the order. Hannah prays, Hannah is joyful, Hannah gets pregnant. When I read my old prof pointing that out, I thought, he's a genius! Until I realized he took it from Tim Keller and adapted it because Tim Keller said, prayer, pregnancy, peace. No, that's not the story. It's prayer, peace, pregnancy. Don't spend your life waiting for this thing, whatever it is for you, to come through thinking it will finally, that you will finally be fulfilled once it happens. Once I have a baby, I will feel fulfilled. Once I get married, I will be happy. Once I settle down in a big house and a white picket fence, you, you do realize the finish line will keep moving, right? True joy and fulfillment is only found in Christ. And it is found in Christ. Even if you never get the baby or the spouse or the white picket fence. God is better than many sons. Application number one is for those who think true joy and fulfillment comes only after you receive a baby or a husband or a white picket fence. Application number two, for those wondering how the first story of 1 Samuel fits into God's big story. <laughs> Love this. Hannah, like every Israelite mother, held her baby boy in her arms and wondered, is this the promised Messiah? Is this the Genesis 3.15 baby? Is this the sinless son? Is this God's son? It wouldn't take long before Hannah realized he wasn't the one. Samuel was a sinful son. Hundreds of years later, Hannah, hundreds of years later, another woman would face an impossible birth like Hannah's. This woman's name? Mary. She would hold a baby in her arms and the angels would declare, this is the promised Messiah, the sinless son, God's son. The Genesis 3.15 baby finally came into the world. The salvation of the world came through a womb. He came in bloody and sticky and he would go out like he came in, all bloody and sticky. It's through his blood and his work on the cross that you can be saved. Repent of your sins and trust the one who became bloody from his birth to his death that you might have eternal life. Dear modern Hannah, rest easy. Your salvation doesn't depend on what comes out of your womb, but what came out of the womb of another. How are the two stories connected? The two births, the two boys. How will God use the baby Samuel to prepare the world for baby Jesus? Well, that story continues next week. I'll see you here. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. 
For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.